Today on Velshia, as the war rages on in Ukraine, attention is turning with growing alarm to a tiny Russian-occupied breakaway region that could hold the key to Vladimir Putin's next move. Plus, another round of damning text messages from the failed former president's inner circle and another guilty plea from the January 6th insurrection from an oath keeper accused of heading into the capital breach wearing tactical gear and goggles after talking civil war in encrypted messages. And the award-winning scholar and author Dorothy Roberts makes the case that an institution charged with protecting our nation's children is actually tearing families apart. Then, can social media help dismantle democracy? We're quite possibly about to find out. Two of the smartest people I know will explain why. Velshi starts now. Good morning. It is Saturday, April the 30th, day 66 of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ali Velshi. This morning, we're going to go back in time to talk about a tiny place in Eastern Europe that could become key to the war that's now raging across Ukraine. Geographically, Transnistria is a region in eastern Moldova. It's located between the Dniester River in the west and the Ukrainian border in the east. The area encompassing Transnistria and present-day Moldova was taken by the Soviet Union during the early part of World War II. It was then captured by the Axis powers and controlled by Romania for a period of time, then taken once again by the Soviets in 1944, becoming the Moldovian Soviet Socialist Republic. Months before the official end of the Soviet Union, in August of 1991, Moldova declared its independence and gained formal recognition as an independent state by the United Nations on March the 2nd of 1992. Also on March the 2nd, 1992, following months of clashes, an armed and bloody conflict erupted between Moldovans and Transnistrian forces who wanted to remain part of post-Soviet Russia and who were heavily backed by former Soviet forces who were then operating under the Russian flag. A ceasefire was reached on July 21st, 1992, which stopped the military conflict, but it did not stop the political conflict. Transnistria is internationally recognized as part of Moldova. However, it operates as a sort of quasi-independent autonomous region. It's got its own flag, Russian-supported government, parliament, and president. Transnistria even holds its own elections. However, they're not internationally recognized and are not believed to be free or fair. Transnistria remains heavily influenced by Russia. There's even a big statue of Lenin in the, ta- in the city square. And as part of that 1992 ceasefire, Russia was allowed to keep a so-called peacekeeping force in Transnistria. It's a force of between 1,000 and 2,000 troops, which it still maintains. Back in March of this year, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe recognized Transnistria as Moldovan territory occupied by Russia. And in a way, Transnistria is to Moldova what the Donbass was to Ukraine pre-invasion, except that Transnistria has been left to marinate under direct Russian influence for 30 years with Russian troops. Indeed, after Russia invaded the Donbass and illegally annexed Crimea in 2014, there began a growing movement inside Transnistria to once again become part of Russia. 
Transnistria also has its own armed forces made up of several thousand soldiers, which so far has remained uninvolved in the war in Ukraine. However, there are growing concerns about Russia's plans for Transnistria and the troops that it has stationed there. In the early days of the war in Ukraine, Alexander Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, also a former Soviet republic which borders Ukraine to the north, appeared publicly with a map showing Russia invading Transnistria and Moldova. And recently, Russian state news agencies reported that a high-ranking Russian general told a large gathering that Russia's ultimate goal is to take, quote, full control of southern Ukraine and then to continue on to Moldova, specifically Transnistria. Also, and importantly, that same Russian general said that there's, quote, evidence of oppression of the Russian-speaking population. That is the same lie that would be used by Putin to justify the initial invasion of Ukraine. Well, this week, there were several explosions in the Transnistrian capital of Tiraspol, which Ukrainian officials say were done by Russians as provocations to be used as justification for military intervention. Once again, similar to the situation in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Also similar to the situation in Ukraine, a radio tower in Transnistria was one of the targets of the attack. That's according to local officials. Yesterday, a spokesperson for Ukraine's defense minister warned that Russia may use protecting Russian speakers in Transnistria as an excuse for further aggression against Moldova and southwestern Ukraine. Now, this is important because Transnistria, look at it on the map there, Transnistria offers another route, a western route, to the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa. It's an ancient and heavily fortified coastal city of about a million people. It's a route which could be sought by the Russians to invade the city as they failed to do so uh, in advancing from the east. They've lost their Black Sea flagship, the Moskova, the Moskva, which would have been vital for an amphibious assault. One of the cities on Russia's route to Odessa from the east, Mykolaiv, remains under Ukrainian control, mainly due to the intense and fierce resistance, despite being under assault since February. Further east of that, in the Sea of Azov, despite Putin's public pronouncements that Russia has conquered the port city of Mariupol, small pockets of fighting continue in what's left of the city. One recently escaped resident said of the city, quote, hell is what's happening there. And yesterday, the mayor added, quote, if Mariupol is hell, Azovstal is worse, referring to the city's giant cavernous steel plant. Several thousand soldiers and civilians, including about 600 wounded, remain holed up under horrific conditions and ongoing Russian bombings, including one that hit a field hospital within the factory, according to Ukraine's foreign affairs ministry. Despite not yet capturing the city, a senior U.S. Defense Department official says Russia has pulled several dozen battalion groups, each of about a thousand soldiers from Mariupol, and it's redeploying them to the fighting in the Donbass region. The official also says that Russia appears to be, quote, several days behind on its new major offensive in the Donbass, making no major gains, only slow and unsteady advancements while dealing with many of the same issues from earlier in the war, mainly fierce Ukrainian resistance and ongoing supply and morale problems. Now, that hasn't stopped Russian attracts, uh, attacks elsewhere in Ukraine, including in places previously viewed as safe. Local officials say that at least one person is dead after a Russian missile struck a high residential uh, building in Kiev. That's right after the, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, met with U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres in that city. 
Joining me now is Jonathan Katz. He's the director of Democracy Initiatives, a senior fellow for the German Marshall Fund of the United States and a former deputy assistant uh, administrator at the U.S. Agency for International Development in Europe and Eurasia, where he led programs in places including Ukraine, the Black Sea region, Russia and Moldova. Jonathan, good morning to you. Thank you for being with us this morning. I want to talk about Moldova. We, it's come up in, in, in different conversations. It's been talked about since the beginning of this war. It's beginning to seem more relevant. And the Moldovans in particular are worried that as a, another non-NATO country in the region, formerly affiliated with the, with the Soviet Union, that they could be next. Yeah, um, they are the most vulnerable country uh, in the region right now. And what happens in Ukraine over the next several weeks, days, months is going to have a direct impact on Moldova. And and, and Moldovans know uh, full well uh, Russian hybrid aggression. They faced this over the last three decades. Uh, Russia has done everything, Mr. Putin, to ensure that Moldova has not moved closer to the West. So they're vulnerable in terms of security. They've also taken in over 400,000 refugees, 100,000 have stayed. And of course, we, we should be deeply concerned about what happens next in Moldova. And, and by the way, those refugees you talk about, in, in proportion to the size of the country, it's by far per capita the, the largest number of refugees anywhere. Uh, obviously, it's very close to southwestern Ukraine, so it makes sense. People, refugees tend to want to stay as close to home as possible in the hopes that the, the thing that caused them to be refugees ends. But how, how does Moldova even handle that? Yeah, there's been a, a great deal of support from Moldova, and I just wanted to, to highlight the, uh, how welcome they have been by the Moldovan government and people. And, but what you've seen is an outpouring of the international community in support of Moldova's uh, efforts to support the humanitarian needs. We've seen uh, the administrator of USAID, Samantha Power, in Moldova twice. The U.S. is providing over $100 million in immediate assistance to Moldova to address the humanitarian needs. And so, they, you know, there's a lot of support that's pouring in. More is needed. Uh, let's not forget this is the poorest country in Europe. Uh, it's facing both an energy crisis and an economic crisis right now. So much more needs to be done. But I, I really want to point out uh, how heroic the Moldovans have been in support of Ukrainians. And I think it, uh, I think you can see this in terms of the support that they're receiving right now, both from the United States and Europe. You know, the Baltic states, Poland, these are all company, countries that really take their NATO membership seriously, uh, particularly in light of what's going on right now. Moldova's not a member. Sweden's not a member. Finland's not a member. Everybody suddenly expressed interest in becoming uh, a NATO member. Moldova, in response to their request, got the questionnaire because it's, it's the beginning of a very long process. Some of these countries, including Ukraine, would like to be members of NATO right now, but that's simply not how it works. So what's the outlook for these countries if Russia says, you don't come under NATO protection. We actually apparently can walk in and, and do what we want. I, I think this is the, one of the most important questions. Uh, Moldova is, uh, declares itself as a neutral country. So it has had a partnership with, with NATO, but has not uh, sought NATO membership. Its EU membership is in, in motion right now. And it's critically important that the EU move as quickly as possible on Moldova's uh, EU membership process. Uh, the Moldovans are saying right now that they would like to have increased security cooperation uh, with partners in the West, including the United States. And we're seeing those discussions happen. 
but Moldova still is and still declares itself a neutral country. So they're not trying to invite Russia's military action. What they want to do is ensure their own security. And I think it's very likely that we'll see a deepening security relationship between Moldova and its neighbors, including Romania, which has one of the largest borders with Moldova and the United States as well. And we, we've seen this in, over the last several weeks, including a recent visit by the uh, Moldovan foreign minister to Washington, uh, where he discussed these very issues. This is the benefit of having an expert like you so early in the morning. I misspoke. Moldova has not applied for NATO membership. It was EU membership that it applied for, which you have right. clarified. So we appreciate that, Jonathan. Thank you for being with us. Jonathan Katz is the director of democracy initiatives and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Joining me now from Lviv, Ukraine, is NBC News foreign correspondent Raf Sanchez. Uh, Raf, uh, I, I want to go back to the situation in, in Mariupol. This is quite something. It's the equivalent uh, to the American mind of the Alamo, really. Uh, there, there are soldiers and civilians holed up in here. There, it is their last stand. They, the, the, the Ukrainians otherwise do not have control of Mariupol. Uh, Vladimir Putin says that the Russians control it, but in the end, that Azov-style factory still stands. Ali, the Alamo is right. In town squares across this country, you are seeing signs supporting Mariupol. You are seeing people gathering, waving flags, trying to do what they can, even if it's just a gesture, to support those Ukrainian troops and civilians who are still trapped inside. Now, if we were speaking 24 hours ago, I would have told you things were possibly, possibly looking hopeful. President Zelensky's office had put out a short statement saying, they were hoping to move ahead with an evacuation of civilians inside the plant on Friday. But, Ali, more than 24 hours on from that statement, there is no progress that we can point to. Folks are still trapped inside that steel plant. We were speaking to a soldier there this morning. He says the Russian bombardment has been relentless. There is no way to come out of there, even if they wanted to. And we spoke also to the wife of a soldier who is in there. She said he is doing his best to try to reassure the kids who are in there, many of whom are orphans. She said at this point in his exhaustion, the thing that he wants most is just a drink of clean water. Hmm. Now, we know that the U.N. has moved a team down to Zaporizhia in the southeast to try to be in position to get to Mariupol if a window of opportunity does open up. But despite President Putin telling the Secretary General of the United Nations, he agreed in principle to the presence of international groups to try to facilitate an evacuation. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, saying they don't need any foreigners there. The way out is clear if the civilians want to take it. So it remains a very desperate situation there in Mariupol, Ali. Raf, thanks again for your reporting. We'll stay in close touch with you this morning. NBC's Raf Sanchez live in Lviv, Ukraine. All right, I touched on the topic of annexation briefly when talking about Transnistria earlier. Annexation has been a tool used by Vladimir Putin and many other authoritarian leaders in the past. It's the formalization of the land grab that we're currently watching play out. Plus, new details on the January 6th committee's much-anticipated public hearings, what we should expect and when. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.
Quote, it is often said that unpunished evil returns. I would add unpunished evil evil returns winged with a sense of omnipotence, end quote. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave that warning to the Australian parliament on March 31st, about a month into Russia's invasion of his country. Zelensky went on to explain that if the world had adequately punished Russia for invading Crimea in 2014, this current war could have been avoided. And he's right. Aside from some relatively modest economic sanctions and Russia's expulsion from the G8 group of world leaders, the Kremlin's annexation of Crimea went largely unchallenged. So if the colonizing Russian dictator has his way, he'd probably do it again. Annexing a territory is considered an act of aggression by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Annexation happens after a state acquires territory of another state by force. It usually happens after a military occupation, and it's generally illegal under international law. Russia successfully annexed Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. It was the biggest land grab in Europe since World War II. At the time, Putin insisted... He was protecting ethnic Russians against far-right extremists, claims that were unfounded yet continue to be repeated as an excuse for the current invasion, which you aren't allowed to call an invasion in Russia. The Russian government opposed the annexation label, as most occupiers do, because that would mean admitting to an international crime. Vladimir Putin is certainly not the first leader to annex territory and to claim it as his own. The world has a long history of power-hungry men who have attempted to forcibly take the land of others. Let's start right here in America. Before Hawaii was a state, it was ruled by a monarchy. In the 1880s, the sugar industry was booming on the islands of Hawaii, so non-Native American businessmen, investors, and planters started to exploit the island's sugar. In 1893, a group organized by American businessmen staged a coup against Hawaii's queen with the tacit support of the American government. Some members of Congress actually opposed the formal annexation of Hawaii, so it took several years before it actually happened. But it did. Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was an annexation. In 1990, Iraq's forces, led by Saddam Hussein, invaded Iraq's tiny, oil-rich neighbor. Kuwait's army was immediately overwhelmed. By annexing Kuwait, Saddam Hussein gained control of 20% of the world's oil reserves, but the U.S. responded with Operation Desert Storm, a massive American-led military operation against Iraq, ostensibly to protect those oil reserves. Eventually, Kuwait was liberated, and it remains an independent nation today. One annexation that remains unresolved today is Western Sahara. Morocco began its occupation of Western Sahara in 1975. The Moroccan government insisted, and still does, that Western Sahara is inherently part of Morocco and that independence should not be an option for the indigenous population. By 1979, Morocco had fully annexed the territory. Under international law, the annexation of Morocco is null and void. It's rejected by the United Nations, the World Court, and the African Union. But in 2020, Under the former disgraced president of the United States, America became the first country in the world to recognize Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. It was a trade made by the former president as part of a deal to normalize Morocco's relations with Israel. Which brings us, arguably, to the leading occupying force in the world, Israel. The map of the Palestinian Authority, sometimes described as Swiss cheese, has been carved up by Israel over the past century. 
The state of Israel has forced the annexation of several Arab territories. Israel captured East Jerusalem from Jordan during the Six-Day War in 1967, and it remains occupied by Israel to this day. But occupation is just a step toward annexation. Israel actually did annex two-thirds of the Golan Heights from Syria during the Six-Day War, passing a law extending Israeli law, jurisdiction, and administration to the area. And America also under the former president, finally recognized that illegal annexation in 2019 as a gift to the then-Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was struggling politically. In a massive political failure, the Biden administration has not rolled back that recognition. The West Bank has also been occupied by Israel since 1967. Israel and the Palestinians both assert rights in the West Bank, leaving its status unresolved. Israel claims historical and religious rights to the West Bank as the ancestral land of the Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish settlers now live on illegally occupied Palestinian land in the West Bank. Palestinian families are constantly kicked out of their homes to make room for more Israeli settlements, often under false pretenses and legal justifications. The vast majority of the international community considers those settlements illegal. Israel's plan to formally annex portions of the West Bank have been on hold since the start of the pandemic and the ushering in of a new Israeli government. It's not illegitimate to change borders as long as it's done through negotiation with the parties on both sides of those borders agreeing to the change. Forcibly occupying another territory is illegal. When an annexation goes unchallenged by the rest of the world, it leads to violence, persecution, oppression, and in the case of Ukraine, war. We're learning more details about the January 6th Select Committee's long-awaited public hearings. According to its chairman, Congressman Benny Thompson, there will be a total of eight hearings, with the first slated for June the 9th, just over a month away. Quote, we'll tell the story about what happened, Thompson told reporters. We will use a combination of things that we have through the lens of thousands of exhibits we've looked at, as well as hundreds of witnesses we've deposed. One name that's certain to come up many times is former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. Just last week, a former staffer claimed that Meadows was warned ahead of time that January 6th could turn violent. And now Meadows, uh, well, his name's in the headlines, this time over texts with Fox News' Sean Hannity. The messages obtained by CNN showed the two men strategizing about how best to invalidate the results of the 2020 election and lamenting stolen votes. The 80 new texts are just a small portion of more than 2,000 messages that Meadows provided to the select committee. Neither here nor Hannity responded to CNN's request for a comment. And all of these new details beg the question, if this is just a preview of the June hearings, what fireworks do they have in store for the main event? Joining me now is Betsy Woodruff Swan. She's a national correspondent for Politico and an MSNBC contributor. Betsy, good morning to you. Uh, we've heard a lot of these January 6th members, uh, you know, where, where generally I think they, they try to manage expectations, suggesting that these hearings are going to be a very big deal. What are we expecting? First, a whole bunch of them throughout the month of May. Chairman Benny Thompson has said that they'll have eight 
that's a lot of content that the select committee is going to be putting out for the public to process. And some of the open questions are, how do they structure all these hearings? We know some will be during prime time, while others will be during the the work hours of the day. That's something the chairman has also said. There are questions about, will people have to watch all of them to get the full picture? Or will there be opening hearings that kind of lay out kind of the, uh, shall we say, the cliff's notes of what exactly happened on January 6th and why people should care about getting a complete and detailed picture of the violence of that attack. What we don't know is how thematically they're going to organize these hearings, and we don't know if they're going to bring in witnesses who might be adversarial. Of course, we do know they've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of people, and in fact, that it's just a tiny percentage of the people they've reached out to who haven't cooperated. Are they going to bring in uh, witnesses who are Trump supporters, who they might try to interview in a way to hold them accountable? Or are they going to bring in folks uh, like some of the former DOJ DOJ officials who have cooperated with the committee extensively to talk about Trump's efforts to co-opt that department? We don't know yet. And frankly, it's possible the select committee doesn't know yet either. They've still got a month to hammer out all these details. And it's really a top priority. It's also a challenging priority for them to grapple with right now. So I guess the question is, for many of us who watched January 6th and heard everything that came out afterwards, we we sort of have a view of what's happened. And clearly there's a portion of America that has a different view uh, of what happened. So this whole idea that they're going to have stuff that's going to, quote, blow the roof off uh, in, in Jamie Raskin's words. What's your sense of what that is and whether there's absolutely anything that could come out that will move anybody who is as yet 15 months later unmoved about what happened on January 6th? It's a really good question because we already know so much about this event. It's perhaps the best documented terror attack in modern history. There's been so much remarkable journalism and work by folks in the nonprofit space and the government space looking at what happened that day. And of course, many of the attackers were also very helpful by live streaming the crimes that they were committing as they committed them. So we know a lot about it. What we know less about are the specific conversations that happened in the White House. We don't know a ton about Ivanka Trump's conversations with then-President Trump. We don't know a ton about any perspective that Jared Kushner might have had on the efforts to block the election from being moved forward while he was traveling overseas. There's a number of senior Trump administration officials who haven't spoken publicly in any great detail about the way that that day unfolded. And we know the select committee has had access to many of those officials for lengthy and detailed interviews. We don't know how forthcoming those folks were. And that's something that we'll find out during these hearings and when the report comes out. Exactly how candid were they? Exactly how transparent were these people? That, in my view, is the biggest area where there's still opacity for many people in the public and the media, but where the select committee has a unique level of visibility. And it's, and it's a, I mean, it's a really interesting area, I think. We'll find out soon. We will be watching the space carefully, Betsy. Thank you, as always. Betsy Woodruff-Swan is a national correspondent for Politico and an MSNBC contributor. Coming up next, families broken apart by the very system that is supposed to protect them, and it disproportionately affects and even targets some more than others.
tell you about Vanessa Peoples. Vanessa is a black woman and the mother of two toddlers. While enjoying a family picnic at the park one afternoon, her eldest son wandered off, but not out of her sight. A woman passing by thought that her son was unattended, so she called 911, even though Vanessa was walking toward her son. When the police arrived, they wanted proof that Vanessa was the child's mother and only relented when her relatives vouched for her. Still, the police ticketed Vanessa for child abuse and reckless endangerment. Now, that was just the beginning of Vanessa's ordeal. A month later, a caseworker made a surprise visit to her home. Vanessa was in the basement giving her children a bath at the time, so she didn't hear the knock at the door. When one of her sons went upstairs and peeked out the window, the caseworker spotted him and again mistakenly assumed that the child was unattended. Once again, a call was made to the police. And when the cops arrived, they entered Vanessa's home without a warrant or without permission, and Vanessa was charged a second time with child abuse. To avoid jail time, she pled guilty to the charges against her on the advice of her public defender. Vanessa was in nursing school at the time, but because of the strains of court-mandated appearances and parenting classes, she was forced to drop her studies. And with child abuse charges now on her record, she's barred from many employment opportunities in health care. So because of that one phone call by a stranger at the park one afternoon, the government became a huge and disruptive presence in almost every aspect of Vanessa's life. And Vanessa's case is not an isolated incident. It's what happens when state agencies have the power to intervene and excessively police families. Every year, child protection agencies investigate three and a half million cases in America. One study found that 37% of all children, all American children, will be the subject of a CPS investigation before they turn 18. But in the case of black children, more than half of their families, 53%, are investigated by such agencies during their childhood. Of those who are placed in foster care, only 17% are victims of physical or sexual abuse, compared to 63% who are taken from their families due to the allegations of neglect, which is a broad term that encompasses larger social issues like food insecurity and improper housing, and that often stem from race, class, and gender inequality. The stories of families whose lives have been disrupted by the intrusion of child protective agencies are chronicled in a new book titled Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. The book argues, the author argues, that the system currently in place actually does more harm than good to the children that it aims to protect. It makes a case for a radical reimagining of how America can do a better job of protecting children and supporting families. And Dorothy Roberts, a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, is the author of that book and several others. Dorothy, good morning to you. Good to see you. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me back on your show. It's a privilege and honor to be here. Well, it's, it's important for us to learn about this. You recently wrote about five myths that the public has about America's child protective system. And I want to put those on the screen. But in your book, you write, quote, this nation's terroristic approach to protecting children blames the most marginalized parents for the impact of race, class and gender inequalities on their children, obscuring those unequal structures and the need to dismantle them. The mission of CPS agencies is not to care for children or protect their welfare. Rather, they respond inadequately and inhumanely to the effects of our society's abysmal failure to care enough about children's welfare, end quote. 
I guess I have to ask you, Dorothy, how do you compare your call for the abolition of, of child protection services to folks who were calling for defunding the police when others said, but hold on, we, we actually do need police to keep people safe. They may not be doing a good job, but but eliminating them they may not, may not be the right example. What's the comparison here? Well, I actually think both movements to abolish the police and to abolish family policing are very much connected, partly because these systems are so entangled in the way in which they approach the needs of people and conflicts in society through these punitive means that disrupt communities and families, and also because they work hand in hand. And let me just point out one thing you omitted from Vanessa's story is that at the end, seven police officers came into her house, dislocated her shoulder, hogtied her, and carried her out and put her in jail, all stemming from her little boy traipsing away momentarily from her at a family picnic. So we have to understand that these are very entangled systems and the calls to end them and divert the billions and billions of dollars spent on them to actually caring for families, meeting children's needs, really addressing by preventing family violence would keep children and communities far safer. And it would be better to do that than to continue these destructive systems that in the end are not keeping people safe and they're not meeting people's needs. And so we need to radically transform the very approach, the very logic of how we meet the needs of people in our society and how we address the problems that are actually caused by the deep structural inequities that we have. So you talked about um, what would happen when, when when you talk about abolishing child and, and uh, protective services. You, you, you talked about how the pandemic actually may have proved your case in which you write the pandemic yeah. revealed both the folly of our current child welfare system and the promise of a radically different approach. We could start by diverting the billions of dollars, as you just said, spent on investigating, monitoring and separating families to tangible resources provided directly to parents and other family caregivers, as well as to voluntary community based supports for families. Explain to us what you mean. You're saying that during the pandemic, this sort of happened and and there was a better outcome. Yes. And let me give credit to Anna Ahrens, an assistant professor at NYU, who pointed out that during the pandemic, there were all these warnings that children were going to be abused in their homes because they were trapped with their parents and CPS wasn't going out to investigate. And that's true in New York City, for example, CPS and the family courts almost shut down because of the pandemic during the lockdown period. But what happened wasn't what they predicted. It was the opposite. Children were kept as safe in their homes. There was not any kind of overload of child abuse going on in the homes. And everyone who's looked at this has conceded that those predictions were wrong, uh, including the head of the Administration for Family Services in New York City. So why was that? What kept children safe? And what it was was an outpouring of mutual aid networks that distributed groceries, diapers that uh, 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 provided childcare and other kinds of care needed by families. And it also stemmed from the CARES Act that distributed millions and millions of dollars directly into the hands 
of parents and other family caregivers without the need to be investigated, without the need for their children to be traumatized by separating them, without the need to put children in foster care. And those reveal two main aspects of how we could replace this system that's so traumatic and so racist that clearly, you know, 53 percent of black children investigated by this set of agencies that can't be because their parents are truly neglecting and abusing them. It's because they have needs that are being unmet. And we need a radically different approach that dismantles this vicious system that, yes, I call a terroristic system because it's taking children away from their families unnecessarily and replace it with mutual aid, community-based resources, transformative justice that actually deals with the roots of domestic violence and prevents it, and also a radical change in government policy that truly addresses the astronomical rates of childhood poverty in America. We have the highest rate of child poverty in America, especially in the very communities that are torn apart by the system, Black and Native communities. And we also have the highest rate of taking children away from their families, rooted in a history of this, again, targeted primarily at Black and Indigenous communities, even as a weapon of war against them, and this is not helping to keep children safe. We could see that it's a failure. So we should stop yeah. clinging on to it as if it's necessary, start dismantling it, and at the same time, build up the kinds of resources and approaches that would truly support families and keep children safe in their homes. Dorothy, this is a topic that we need many, 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 many hours to discuss. But fortunately, you have written a book about this, uh, which is an important read for people who don't even know that this is an issue, which might be most people. Dorothy, thanks very much for uh, raising awareness of this. Dorothy is a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. All right. If you haven't checked your 401k lately, uh, Today might not be the day to do it unless you want to ruin the mood. The first four months of 2022 are on track to be the worst start to a year in over eight decades. And that's not even uh, considering the most concerning aspect of the economy right now, which I'll discuss on the other side of the break. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's 
been a pretty rough week for the markets. The S&P 500, which tracks the performance of the 500 biggest companies on the stock market, tumbled yesterday, hitting its steepest decline for the month of April in 20 years. The index has fallen for four consecutive weeks. But take a look at this. This is a 10-year S&P 500 chart. It's down nearly 14% this year alone, but Again, as you can see, over 10 years, the market's done very well. Simultaneously, the Dow is down more than 9% year to date. The tech-heavy Nasdaq is down more than 22%. The first four months of 2022 are on track to be the worst to start a year in over eight decades. Some of this volatility has been triggered by high prices and especially by high oil prices. The war in Ukraine and the enduring Russian oil dependence about which we've often spoken is a big contributor. Take a look at the price of oil that we trade here in the U.S. over the past 10 years as well. This is a little choppier than the stock market, as you can see. Uh, uh, Prices of oil have topped $100 before, uh, but oil is still a major economic input to inflation, which is what we're facing. We also got some fresh economic data this week on gross domestic product, GDP. It's the broadest measure of the economy that we have at the moment. The U.S. saw the weakest quarter for GDP growth since the start of the pandemic in the spring of 2020. Uh, We saw it shrinking. That's what you can see at the top right of your screen there, shrinking at a 1.4% annualized rate in the first three months of the year. This is largely attributed to a widening widening trade deficit and these ongoing supply chain issues with which we have been grappling. Think about it. If it's hard to get stuff, you pay more for that stuff uh, and it's in short supply. So you, you not as many people buy it. There's a major asterisk here, and that is that the GDP numbers will be revised and corrected several times over the course of the year because such a big, unwieldy number. Uh, GDP numbers in the moment do not paint a totally accurate picture of what's happening. So I almost want to put that aside for a second. You have to watch those over time. What is happening in real time are that interest rates are going up. And we can probably expect a Fed rate increase from the Federal Reserve next week. Officials of the U.S. Central Bank are set to raise their benchmark rate by half a percentage point and then possibly another half a percentage point in June. Now, if you think of the Fed as a car with only brakes and gas but no steering wheel, raising rates is the equivalent of hitting the brakes. It makes it more expensive for people and companies to borrow money, so they spend less money. That reduces demand and it cools inflation down. But this is not an exact science. If you cool spending down too much, you could end up in a recession or with a whole lot of people mad about how much interest they're paying. While the Fed raised rates by just a quarter of a percentage point in March, it's the first such raise since 2018. The actual interest rates on personal loans, credit cards and what you're looking at here, mortgages have shot up by much more. A 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, if you have good credit, is now higher than 5%. This is the tough reality. The problem is bad, and the solution is bad, too. No president wants a tenure plagued by inflation or by high interest rates or by major fears of a recession or by an actual recession. There's just no easy out here for President Biden, so he's going to have to make a difficult choice. For better or for worse, Americans vote with their wallets, and right now that could be a big problem for a potential second term. For Joe Biden. Right after the break, we're joined by a man who has an informed opinion on what President Biden should do. He's the former chief economist for the International Monetary Fund, Ken Rogoff.
Before the break, we were discussing how several major indicators show that the U.S. economy is in some trouble, which could have a big impact on President Biden's reelection prospects as we get closer to 2024. Joining me now is Kenneth S. Rogoff. He's a former chief economist for the International Monetary Fund and a professor of public policy and economics at Harvard University, a friend of mine, upon whom I don't call uh, that often. So when I do, when you see this split screen of, of Ken Rogoff and me, you know there's something important to discuss. And Ken, the reason I'm calling you now today is to say we've got markets struggling, we've got oil prices high, we've got inflation, we've got interest rates going up. Uh, what, when you put this all into your calculation, does it mean? Well, it's definitely a scary situation. And it, the whole world, Ali, I mean, uh, for sure, the war in Ukraine, uh, and by the way, uh, I have to commend you on your fine work there. The war in Ukraine has uh, shooting oil prices up, food prices up, it's cutting uh, supply lines. And uh, China has this COVID zero policy that it's uh, a failure, it needs to exit from it. That's exacerbating the inflation, that's exacerbating supply problems. And of course, uh, the Federal Reserve is having to, you know, do something now that inflation's so high, it's going to come down a little on its own, but not nearly enough. And really, there's the makings, I, I hate to be grim, of a perfect storm here in the global economy with Europe, China, the U.S., all in trouble at once, reinforcing each other. There's a chance, a, a decent chance things will get better, but it's a very risky situation. And I think markets are really starting to see this. So uh, inflation solves itself two ways, right? One, uh, it, uh, this is a pretty crude example, but one is that the, the Fed increases interest rates as it has done uh, once. It will probably do again next week. It'll probably do again in June. Slows the economy down because people don't borrow as much. The other hand is, is you can actually have a recession. People keep other things can happen. And that obviously slows the economy down um, more. And, and, and one can lead to another. And raising interest rates is an inexact science because you can raise them enough that it, it does actually slow the economy down. So what's the right course of action, given everything you've just talked about? You know, you gave a great analogy, Ali, of a car, driving a car that just had gas and brakes. But I'd go one step further. When you step on the brakes, it doesn't do anything. For a couple minutes. The Fed doesn't know how soon when it raises interest rates, there'll be a reaction. When it didn't raise them sooner, I think it didn't know inflation was coming. And so it's a very difficult. It's not a science. It's very difficult to do it precisely. And in the middle of all these uncertainties, I, I think the Fed will be cautious and err more on the side of letting inflation go. But there, there's just no easy answers here. I mean, I think a lot of mistakes have been made. There's been a lot of you know, extremely bad luck. And we just have to hope for some good luck. Well, let's hope for that. Uh, Ken, good to see you as always. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Ken Rogoff is the former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. He's a public policy and economics professor at Harvard University. Straight ahead, a new batch of text messages from the cell phone of the former president's then chief of staff regarding the January 6th insurrection. Another hour of Velshi begins right now. Good morning. It is Saturday, April 30th. It's 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. here on the West Coast. I'm Ali Velshi. Jot down this date. 
June 9th, 40 days from now, that's when the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is scheduled to begin its long-awaited public hearings, detailing the findings of its nearly year-long investigation. Committee members have been teasing these hearings since the beginning of the year, but this is the first time we've received any details about the committee's plans. The chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, told reporters that the panel is scheduled to hold eight hearings beginning on June 9th, with some of those hearings taking place during primetime hours. Witnesses will be called. Many exhibits will be presented that will weave together a narrative of what led to the insurrection, which Democratic Congressman and January 6th committee member Jamie Raskin said, quote, will really blow the roof off the House. The committee is setting the bar high for what people can expect to come out of these hearings, especially as more bombshell revelations have continued to leak about the conduct of some key GOP figures. In just the past week, audio recordings and text messages between Republican members of Congress, members of the Trump administration, and other conservative firebrands have exposed the extent of the right-wing coordination to deny Joe Biden the presidency. They've also exposed disunity and rancor within the Republican Party in the days after the insurrection. That was most apparent in the comments made by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy just days after Trump supporters breached the Capitol. Listen to this. Let me be very clear to all of you, and I've been very clear to the president. He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. No ifs, ands, or buts. Tension is too high. The country is too crazy. I do not want to look back and think we caused something or we missed something and someone got hurt. Um, I don't want to play politics with any of that. For a fleeting second, Kevin McCarthy had clarity. He came to some logical conclusions, thinking that the violence that he and hundreds of his colleagues had just experienced at the Capitol that we all witnessed He linked it to the violent rhetoric of a select group of members of his own party. Quote, I don't want to play politics with any of that. End quote. His exact words. His statements had a short shelf life because he's back on good terms with the man he said bore responsibility for the violent insurrection at the Capitol. He's done nothing to rein in the outlandish behavior of members of his own party. One congressman faces calls for an ethics investigation due to various transgressions that would take us too much time to list right now. The other one is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Enough said about that as well. The public has received a lot of new information in the 15 months since the insurrection that's come from a wide variety of sources, but it still pales in comparison to the amount of information that the committee has gathered. To date, they've met with more than eight hundred witnesses and they've collected tens of thousands of documents. Their work is continuing. On top of that, the Justice Department continues to pursue the prosecution of hundreds of people who took part in the insurrection. Yesterday, a second member of the far-right extremist group Oath Keepers entered a guilty plea for seditious conspiracy. Brian Ulrich is one of the 11 Oath Keepers charged with allegedly plotting to commit violence at the Capitol with the intent of preventing the peaceful transfer of power. I'm joined now by Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian, who covers the January 6th committee. Hugo, good morning to you. We have finally got a date for the January 6th's panel's long-awaited public hearing. It's going to be on June 9th. We're going to start. But you have a new report that the committee's not done yet. It's still looking for the cooperation of more GOP members. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I think the recent revelations and the leaks uh, from McCarthy and from other members of Congress being in touch with Mark Meadows, who was the then White House chief of staff, 
um, has put the committee into a new gear, right? They now want to capitalize on the public pressure on McCarthy and these other House Republicans. And they think now is the time to call them in once more to see if they might cooperate with the investigation. So it's going to be voluntary letters that are going to be sent out to McCarthy and a number of other prominent uh, Trump defenders on Capitol Hill, including uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andy Biggs and Mo Brooks and people who were connected to Meadows in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th. And the final list isn't yet complete, so I should say that that could still change, but the letters are expected to come, I think, next week now. Um, And it's going to be a precursor to what may come next. If these members of Congress refuse to cooperate with the committee and refuse to cooperate with these letters, the next thing on the agenda may well be subpoenas. But this is like the final chance, the last chance saloon for some of these guys. You have studied this very closely. You're reporting on it every day. Is there any chance that those people whose faces we just had on the screen are likely to voluntarily agree to cooperate with the committee? Uh, I would say no. But, you know, this is the calculus they now have to look at. This committee has amassed, as you said, so much evidence. The reality is a lot of their text messages and a lot of their core detail records and a lot of their emails may and probably are already in the committee's possession. So when all of this evidence comes out at the public hearings and in the final report, they're going to have to think, huh, do I really want to let this narrative go out without any input from me? You know, do I do, do I want to have some role in this so I can shape the final um, narrative of the committee in case I want to tell my side of the story. Um, and, and I think this is going to, what they're going to have to grapple with. I don't think they're going to want to come forward voluntarily, probably because some of these materials might be incriminating or damning for them. But they have a stark choice to make in the days ahead. What do you think? Uh, what do you think the committee members mean? They, they've all had some version of it. Jamie Raskin obviously used the term uh, "blow the roof off the house," but they've all got some version of what is going to happen in these public hearings. Uh, I'm curious as to w- whether you think there's big material coming out, and even if there is, whether or not it will have an impact on on uh, anybody in America. I, mean, I don't know if there's anybody in America who does not have a view about what happened on January 6, 2020, and who's uh, responsible for it. 2021, I'm sorry. No, no, no. no, no, I think the information is is going to be big. Um, These text messages with Sean Hannity and Mark Meadows and other members of Congress is just a slice of the evidence that the committee has. I think a committee member put it to me at about, you know, maybe under 10 percent, which is pretty significant. Right. And I think the story of the public hearings and the story that comes out will be trying to connect Trump and the White House to the various war rooms and the political operatives that were scheming in the weeks and weeks after the election, all the way up to January 6th, down to the militia groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys who actually stormed the Capitol and the committee and the Justice Department actually believe coordinated an assault um, with people around Trump and possibly even Trump himself. So we don't know what the, the story will be at the public hearings and in his final report. But that is the route they are going. They are going they're going to show the coordination top down and then also from bottom up. They're going from both directions to paint this picture of what was happening as to whether anyone's going to pay attention to this. Well, you know, this is the problem the committees have from the start. Right. Fifty percent of the country who voted for Trump is not going to be interested in hearing what the committee said because it doesn't fit their narrative. And the other 50 percent who already dislike Trump and who already think January 6th was a terrible insurrection will believe the committee. I think what the committee is trying to do is to. A, leave a historical record for posterity. And the second thing they're trying to do is to convince those people in the middle who don't follow politics particularly closely, don't follow January 6th particularly closely, and make them go, wow, this was really bad. I might reconsider uh, voting for Trump if he's on the ballot in 2024. 
Hugo, thanks for your great reporting. As always, Hugo Lowell is a congressional reporter for The Guardian. Joining me now is Joyce Vance. She's a former United States attorney and MSNBC contributor and the co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast, on which you have had this discussion with other very smart uh, legal minds many times. So let's take Hugo at his word, right? There's a historical record. That's always important to get to the bottom of the investigation and to have a nice big thick book that tells everybody what actually happened. Beyond that, though, Joyce, democracy itself is at stake right now. And and there are some people who believe that the only way we can deal with this is to get the Justice Department more directly involved in which they go after some of the key players and hold them legally responsible, something that this committee, uh, it's beyond the scope of the committee to do. What's your take on that? So we sit in this moment where there's a lot of uncertainty And that, I think, has created this mood in the country where we've bought into some myths. We believe that the truth can't persuade people who previously supported Trump or who continue to support the Republican Party. I'm not sure that that's true. And this is the challenge that the committee faces. How do you become effective communicators in an era where there's a lot of disinformation floating around? I think we see a little bit of the method the committee may take with some of these texts that have now been selectively leaked and that establish that Mark Meadows and others in the Republican leadership lied. They lied to the American people. They didn't disclose their fears about violence and risk to other members of Congress, to law enforcement authorities. You know, you don't see uh, Kevin McCarthy picking up the phone and calling uh, the Capitol Police or the FBI and saying that he's concerned about the, the risk of violence. I think this narrative, they lied, you can't trust them, may be the prelude to these eight days of hearings. And that's the committee's opportunity. Perhaps they'll have a different theme for each of those days, eight themes to the American people about what the truth is about the insurrection and what Congress needs to do. Because remember, part of Congress's charge is to craft new laws to make sure we're stronger and that it can't happen again. So it'll all, of course, be up to those details. That that might happen. Uh, it might be that they come up with enough uh, ideas about what Congress can do and that Congress actually does that in a short amount of time. Although if the Democrats lose control of Congress, Kevin McCarthy has implied that this committee will not continue investigating what it's uh, investigating. And it does not seem that uh, a, a lot of Republicans in Congress are motivated to change any underlying uh, laws that could help the election. So once again, I ask you, is it is there a role for the Justice Department and the and the attorney general to be moving at a pace that is faster than what most people seem to think they're moving at? The attorney general has said that that he's investigating at all levels, regardless of whether people were present at the Capitol on the day of the insurrection or not. And so DOJ um, tea leaf readers have have read that as an indication that he's willing to look all the way into the Oval Office. The speed of the investigation, Allie, and you and I have talked about this before, is a little bit concerning. We saw very little, if any, indication of progress during the first year of this uh, administration. No witnesses protesting grand jury subpoenas, which you would have expected if they were subpoenaing witnesses into a criminal grand jury. But that pace seems to have picked up since uh, this year, since the 2022 anniversary of the insurrection. There are now signs that there's activity at DOJ. I think people are never pleased with the speed of Justice Department investigations. Um, 
And something that I reflect on is public corruption cases are inherently messy. They're tough. Nobody's happy with you if you're a prosecutor while you're taking a couple of years to put the case together. You're always judged in hindsight by the outcome. Because if you rush the case, if you miss the evidence, if you shoot at the king and you miss, that's the metaphor prosecutors use. If you put together your case with too much haste and miss key evidence or key steps, and you don't lose, then that's the real miscarriage of justice. So now we see a new plea in the Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy case. One of those members has acknowledged that they were involved in a seditious conspiracy, is cooperating with Justice Department prosecutors. Whether this ultimately leads into the Willard War Room, which I think would be a significant step and a significant place for DOJ to bring its next indictments in these cases, that might alter the mood. And if that happens on the same timeline as as progress that the January 6th committee is making, we could see accountability. But there are a lot of ifs here. There are no guarantees. And that's why I say it's a tough moment to live in. Joyce, thank you, as always, for your great analysis. Joyce Vance is a former United States attorney from Alabama and an MSNBC contributor and the co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Well, another day, another media company acquired by another billionaire. But Elon Musk's Twitter takeover is different. He says he plans to let the company loose all under the guise of free speech, except that's not what's actually in jeopardy on the platform. And retaliation over the ruble, Russian gas giant Gazprom has cut off deliveries to Poland and Bulgaria for refusing to pay in the Russian currency. Right after the break, we're on the ground in Ukraine with an update on the war. And I've been looking forward to this all week. Tomorrow, the legendary author Margaret Atwood joins us on the Velshi Band Book Club on her magnum opus, The Handmaid's Tale. There's still plenty of time to send your comments, questions, and reactions to my story at Velshi.com. This is Velshi. Russia is escalating threats against NATO and Ukraine's other Western allies. Yesterday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov told the outlet Al Arabiya that Moscow is ready to attack any convoy of aid being sent to Ukraine, saying, quote, as soon as these weapons are reaching Ukrainian territory, they are fair game for our special operation. Meanwhile, civilians remain trapped in the besieged city of Mariupol. The mayor of Mariupol says the conditions at the Azovstal steel plant, where Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are holed up, are dire. People are running out of food and water. We know that at least one American, by the way, has died while volunteering to fight with the Ukrainian army. The former U.S. Marine Joseph Willie Cancel was killed on Monday. NBC News correspondent Raf Sanchez is in Lviv, Ukraine with the latest. Raf, we're seeing this assault continue on Mariupol in, and the eastern Donbass region. What else is going on? Yeah, Ali, we spoke to a soldier who's inside that steel plant this morning. He says Vladimir Putin's bombs and missiles continuing to rain down on those troops, those wounded soldiers and the women and children who are stuck down in the tunnels with them. Now, hopes of an evacuation of civilians have really been raised and then dashed in the last 24 hours. President Zelensky's office saying yesterday they thought an evacuation would go ahead. Today, there is no sign of any movement down there in Mariupol. As you said, the fighting continuing on the whole eastern front in the Donbass. I actually had a chance yesterday 
to catch up with the Ukrainian member of parliament. Her name is Solomia Bobrovska. She was in Kharkiv at the very northern end of that front. She was going to visit soldiers there. She told me she wanted to thank her fellow lawmakers in the United States Congress for moving so quickly to pass that World War II era Lend-Lease program. But she also urged them to move fast on President Biden's $33 billion request for more aid for Ukraine. I want you to take a little listen to part of that conversation. So I just want to say thank you because what I see uh, on the front line, we are lack uh, of weapon. And that's actually what we need. We have a motivation. We have guys and girls who are fighting. Um, but we need a weapon to have something in our arms to fight with um, against Russians. Now, Ali, every day more and more American weapons are making their ways to the front line in the east. U.S. officials say they have delivered the first tranche of Phoenix Ghost drones to the Ukrainians. These are interesting. They are drones developed in record time by the U.S. Air Force specifically for use by Ukrainian troops. The Pentagon calls them loitering munitions. You and I would call them kamikaze drones. They're very easy to use. They take off, they circle, and then they land down on top of their target with explosive effect. The Ukrainians are also getting more and more of those very badly needed howitzer rounds. As we've talked about before, Ali, this fighting in the east looks more like World War II. Tanks and yeah. artillery going up against each other. The Ukrainians are going through thousands and thousands of rounds every single day. But they're getting more and more from the U.S. as President Biden seeks to be something of an arsenal of democracy for Ukrainian troops. Ali? Ref, thanks always again for your reporting from Ukraine. Ref Sanchez in Lviv. Well, Gazprom cuts the gas tap. The Russian energy giant has halted gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria over their failure to pay for that natural gas in rubles. And now the EU is warning companies against complying with Russian demands. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners and more all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, so we talk a lot about uh, Russian oil and, and energy on this show. It's, it's complicated. In fact, it just got a little more complicated. The European Union is warning countries not to pay for Russian gas in rubles or face potential legal action. This comes just days after Russian gas giant Gazprom cut off natural gas deliveries to Poland and Bulgaria for refusing to pay for it in rubles. You may remember last month, Vladimir Putin issued a a decree requiring, quote, unfriendly countries to pay for their gas in the Russian currency. This long-feared move marks a dramatic escalation of Moscow's bid to weaken the resolve of Ukraine's allies as they send more weapons to help Kyiv fight. 
NBC News correspondent Ron Allen joins us from London. Uh, Ron, good morning or good afternoon to you. Uh, explain why Russia wants its gas paid for in rubles and, and why the European Union has taken the stand that they can't do it. I mean, for most of us, paying in rubles would just mean changing your dollars or your pounds into rubles. <laughs> It means a lot more to the Russians, obviously. It, it's, it means their, the strength of their economy. They see more currency coming to them in that form as helping to break the sanctions. Their central bank, for example, is sanctioned, and there are some uh, several hundred billion dollars worth of currency reserves that are frozen that, it, that the Russians can't get to. Uh, the, the bottom line is that it's, it's about the sanctions, and that's why the European Union does not want its members to, to, to accede to this demand, which essentially breaks some of the contracts that the various countries have with the Russian gas providers. Um, they want to pay in euros or dollars. That's the way they're structured. But I think the, the simple way of thinking about all this is that this is the beginnings or another step of the Russians trying to leverage their strongest industry, their strong, one of their strongest cards, the energy, energy industry, against the European Union. Uh, there's a graphic here that you can see. The, the, the European Union is heavily dependent on Russian gas, about 40% of it. And then there are several big countries, France, Italy, Germany, that get a lot of their gas. And they're individual countries, 27 in the, in the EU. And yes, you're right, Putin is trying to break them apart, break their resolve, break the resolve of NATO as well. And for its part, the United States is trying to keep things together. Uh, here's what President Biden had to say after the Russians issued this uh, decree and, and decided to try and use energy as a weapon. Take a listen. These actions prove that energy is not just a commodity that Russia sells to help meet other countries' needs, but a weapon we use to deploy against those who stand against their aggression. So let me be clear. We will not let Russia intimidate or blackmail their way out of these sanctions. We will not allow them to use their oil and gas to avoid consequences for their aggression. And the bottom line, of course, is that this impacts people on the street. Gas prices, natural gas prices, gas at the pump. All these prices are going up and they're all subject to these global markets and uncertainty in these markets creates tension and creates pressure and inevitably it creates prices rising. So that's another card. That's another aspect of this that makes it important. And yes, you can talk about currency and all kinds of other things. But at the bottom line is that the Russians are trying to use energy to gain some advantage. And it's going to be something that consumers are going to pay attention to because we're going to see it at the pump. No, I, and obviously, that's the big Alex? issue, right? Uh, in, 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 you just showed us the re- reliance that these European countries have on uh, on Russian gas. In a, in a place like Poland, they have the ability to get gas from other places because they've got these liquefied natural gas import ports. Germany has zero of them. So what's the likelihood of a united uh, European response to embargoing, uh, you know, Russian oil or gas when for some of these countries, they don't actually have a viable option? right now to get it from somewhere else? Well, they're saying a number of things. They're saying that they have reserves and they are saying that there are other options that they're exploring. You know, the EU saw this coming. This is not a big surprise. So there have been, and, and not just because of what's happened in Ukraine, for the last number of years, the United States and others have been pushing Europe to ease its dependence on fossil fuels from 
Russia, which has been cheap for the Europeans to, to and it's been the help their economies flourish and, and do much better. So uh, in a broad sense, in the long term, there's a push to get away from fossil fuels to, towards clean energy. And this is the war is having the unintended side effect of pushing the Europeans to do that. Uh, the, the Poles, the Bulgarians who had their supplies of gas cut off, for example, said that they have enough stores to deal with this. The other thing is that their contracts were going to end at the end of this year, so they were phasing this out anyway. But yes, this will be a, a tougher question, especially for Germany, the biggest economy, and they have been the ones who have been uh, most difficult to convince to go along with these energy embargoes or, the, or, or, or this, 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 this area, particularly with oil, for example, which is the next uh, frontier. There's talk of an oil embargo, and oil, of course, is a much, much bigger revenue producer for the Russians and, mm -hmm. a, and a much bigger commodity that the Europeans are dependent on from the Russians. So that's a really dicey area that the EU is now taking steps to try and see what they can do to try and uh, limit the flow of Russian oil. There are billions and billions of dollars a week flowing to Russia from Europe, which are which is fueling the war, of course, in, and because that's what the Russians have. And the Europeans are trying to figure out a way to stop that. And of course, the United States desperately wants the Europeans to figure out a way to stop it. The U.S. has an embargo against coal, oil, gas from Europe. And, and so, again, it's about trying to keep the, the allies, the alliance, NATO, the EU, all on the same page when they have different interests on many issues. Ron, it is always good to see you, my friend. Thank you for this. Uh, NBC News correspondent Ron Allen in London for us. And to continue this discussion, joining me now is a member of Ukraine's parliament, Lesia Vasilenko. Uh, Ms. Vasilenko is a member of the Holos uh, Opposition Party. She's also the founder and chairman of Legal Hundred, a non-governmental organization that provides assistance to Ukraine service people and veterans. Uh, Ms. Vasilenko, good to see you again. Thank you for being with us. And I, I want to ask you about some of the, the, the latest news you've got. Uh, first of all, in the situations in Ukraine, particularly in Mariupol, we are having a very hard time getting information out of there. There's a last stand that's being made by members of uh, the Ukrainian military and some civilians in the Azovstal uh, steel plant there. Vladimir Putin says they've got control of the city. Uh, we have conflicting reports uh, about whether or not that's true. Have you heard anything out of Mariupol? At the moment, Mariupol is still standing, but you are absolutely right. At getting any kind of information is extremely difficult. We know that uh, the Azovstal uh, steel plant has, has been bombed, but that has happened uh, already a couple of days ago. And the hospital, which was located in that steel plant, was completely destroyed. That means that uh, civilians and military alike who have been wounded are now unable to get the basic medical care. And as you can see the footage now from Mariupol, it's absolutely devastating because apart from the military who you are seeing in the streets, there are still civilians trapped there living in the most horrendous conditions that you can possibly imagine. I have to ask you about this because one of the fears is that if uh, the Azov steel, steel plant, if that last stand fails and the Russians do take control of Mariupol, we have heard estimates from city councilors and mayors and, and, and non-governmental organizations initially that maybe 5,000 people have been killed, then 10,000, then 20,000. But one of the dangers, unlike Bucha or places like that, is that if the Russians remain in control of it, we may not get the full story of how bad things uh, became. If the Russians gain control of it, we will never 
know what really happened in Mariupol. We will be left with stories that people tell and retell for generations on end, but we will be unable to gather any any proof because Russia is very good at concealing this proof. We know already that they are stationed in Mariupol and wherever they're occupying next, they are coming there with portative crematoriums, meaning that they are willing to destroy any any evidence of the killings, of the mass killings, of the rapes, of the tortures that they have been committing. This is this is the kind of barbaric army we are dealing with. This is nothing like the world has has seen in decades. And this is something that we need to exert maximum unified efforts to stop. I want to ask you about these discussions that we I just had with Ron Allen, but about um, Russia asking for uh, Poland and Bulgaria to pay for gas in rubles. They said no. Russia says we're switching off your gas, which Poland and Bulgaria can actually deal with. Poland is in a, in a, in a fantastic position to get its gas, natural gas from elsewhere in the world. Germany is not. Italy has problems with this. Uh, the Baltic states have 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 made decisions that are positive for Ukraine. But for citizens around Europe and the world, they are paying more money at the gas pump because of this war. How do you keep everybody on side, keeping the pressure on Russia? Well, about the gas, uh, I, I mean, I hate to say that, uh, look, we told you so, but Ukraine has been uh, uh, pushing for the Nord Stream 2 project to, to, be sh- uh, to, to not be open and for the Nord Stream 1 project uh, to be shut. And we were warning that, you know, if Europe is not prepared to do it themselves, then Russia will do it for them because anytime they, uh, every time they, they are making themselves uh, dependent on Russian gas, every time they are vulnerable to Russia actually saying that, we're going to turn the tap off. And this is exactly what we are seeing happening right now. So uh, the question is uh, to how quickly they can find, like countries like Germany and so on, can find alternative sources uh, of energy. And uh, my bet is to, to develop the green energy. And the second uh, point is, is to negotiate with the other countries, which they are doing, some more successfully than others. Uh, Lesia Vasilenko, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Lesia Vasilenko is a member of Ukraine's parliament and uh, is joining us live from Ukraine. Well, one Tennessee representative must have missed the class the day they covered Fahrenheit 451 in school because he's suggesting that we burn the books that he finds objectionable, literally. This week in Tennessee, the Republican-led state house passed a bill that would require all public school librarians to submit a list of book titles for approval. The librarians will have to submit their lists to a state-run commission, which will decide if the books are appropriate for the school bookshelves. So what happens to all the books deemed too controversial to read? Well, Republican Jerry Sexton, a Tennessee state representative, had an answer to that very question. Let's say you take these books out of the library. What are you going to do with them? You're going to put them in the street, light them on fire. Where are they going? Representative Sexton. I don't have a clue, but I would burn them. I would burn them. Burn the books. 
Banning books that don't fit your political or ideological narrative is a really bad thing that's reminiscent of some of history's darkest times, of the most ruthless, ruthless authoritarian regimes that yearn to silence dissent and whitewash history taking a page literally from Nazi Germany's playbook. In 1933, students in German universities set fire to more than 25,000 books that were deemed, quote, un-German. Every day, the world in which we live is feeling more and more like a dystopia cooked up in a Margaret Atwood novel. Ironically, Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which is banned in many schools and libraries across the nation, shows scenes of book burnings, which makes it a perfect candidate for the Velshi Band Book Club. The legendary and prolific Canadian author Margaret Atwood will join me tomorrow to discuss her widely banned The Handmaid's Tale, the dystopia it portended back in 1985 when she wrote it, and the consequences of limiting literature. You have got time to dust off your copy, buy a new one, or even catch a few episodes of the Hulu TV series by tomorrow morning. And you know we want to hear from you. Email us your thoughts, your questions, and your comments for the author, Margaret Atwood, to mystoryatvelshi.com. I'm excited. This one is going to be great. Don't miss it. All right, coming up next, Elon Musk says his $44 billion Twitter purchase was made in the name of free speech. But perhaps Elon Musk lost his copy of the Constitution because free speech isn't actually the issue here. And taking the guardrails off of Twitter could be catastrophic for democracy. I'll explain. Well, uh, Twitter's soon going to be under new management. I'm sure you've all heard by now. On Monday, the social media giant agreed to be acquired by the tech mogul Elon Musk for about $44 billion in cash. Musk is currently the richest man in the world with a net worth of roughly $239 billion, according to Forbes, which is just a fraction. Uh, well, he's just using a fraction of that uh, for this deal. Now, if the acquisition goes through, Twitter's going to be added to Musk's collection of companies, including Tesla, SpaceX, the brain implant startup Neuralink, and a tunnel construction firm called The Boring Company. In recent years, we've seen more and more media companies get acquired by billionaires as those kind of pet projects. Media companies are now like professional sports franchises. Every billionaire's got to have one. But unlike buying up a sports team, this most recent deal could be catastrophic for democracy. Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter, which is a private company, because he claims that he's a proponent of free speech. He believes there's too much censorship on Twitter as it is now, and he intends to relax the platform's rules on content moderation. In a press release, he said, quote, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated, end quote. For a smart guy, Elon Musk is either missing the point or has lost his copy of the Constitution. Free speech, which I support, is guaranteed by the First Amendment. It's got nothing to do with Twitter's issues. If Twitter were being censored by the government, that's where the issue of free speech, in which Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble, end quote, would come in. But that's not what this is. Twitter's a private platform, a corporate entity entitled to make rules of its own for the safety and enjoyment of its users, choices it has often not made well. Elon Musk gets a lot right, but on this issue, he may be wrong. The government has done patently nothing 
to regulate speech on Twitter or on any other social media platform. The Constitution is intact, though democracy itself isn't, thanks in large part to social media. Now, let me say, I do think Elon Musk is a great thinker. He really has moved the needle on many important innovations in technology. He's done more to make electric cars viable reality than anyone else. His work in outer space is exemplary. He's trying to get us to Mars for crying out loud. But what he intends to do with Twitter, while possibly well-intentioned, is misguided. As a private company, a place he wants to be the real digital town square, some rules are in fact necessary especially when bad actors can now spread falsehoods and incite violence with a velocity that did not exist before the advent of social media. What Musk needs to think about is the fact that our society relies upon an informed electorate, which has always been a problem for us historically, and social media is certainly not helping to achieve that goal. What Twitter now needs is to consider how it can remain being a forum for open dialogue, but to do so without contributing to the erosion of democracy. After a quick break, I've got two leading experts on social media and the dangers it poses. Roger McNamee and Sinan Aral join me next. All right, let's get into Elon Musk's Twitter takeover with our old friend Roger McNamee. He was a former advisor to Mark Zuckerberg, an early Facebook and Google investor. He's the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Also with us is my friend Sinan Aral, MIT professor and author of The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. You two friends are, are, are the smartest minds I go to. You don't always have the same perspective on this, which we don't care about because we love that you have different ones. But you both have a, a view here that maybe this whole conversation is getting a little muddled. I don't care who owns Twitter fundamentally, uh, but the idea of uh, the free speech conversations getting mucked up with a different conversation. Sinan, I'll start with you because you quote tweeted someone in which uh, they said, in short, if you want the free marketplace of ideas to prevail, you must deal with harmful actors who are within the bounds of the law, but whose vitriol destroys participation. There is no perfect solution. So let's dispense with the rhetoric and talk honestly about the trade-offs. I suspect you share that view. 100%. Thank you for having me, Ali. I think that's the point. Obviously, if you don't moderate content, you've got a misinformation problem that has direct implications for democracy. It has direct implications for the public health and COVID misinformation. It has direct implications for war propaganda. You also have an incitement to violence problem. We've seen it happen over social media with the Capitol riot, with the plot to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan over Facebook. But The key point is the point that you just raised, which is that content moderation is essential to free speech. And the reason for that is because of crowding out. If you have people that can bash, badger, and uh, beat down others online without moderation, then the speech of minorities and those who don't have as loud a microphone is curtailed, and that is the problem. So there's a, it's a velocity issue. It's an algorithm issue. Roger, you talk about this all the time. And in fact, people who, who put it into free, t- free, the free speech context are muddying the water here. Twitter does not have a 
First Amendment problem. Uh, no one has told Twitter to do anything, although in Europe they are starting to uh, come out with regulation that is is causing social media companies to have to moderate some of their content. Um, but that's not what what. Uh, uh, Elon Musk has, has hung his hat on something else here, and, and, and I think you think that it's the wrong thing. Yeah, so Ali, I think the fundamental problem here is that Twitter is the place where politicians and journalists build their brands and spread their messages. So it has a disproportionate, it punches way above its weight. It's a, you know less than a tenth the size from a user point of view of Facebook or Google. And Yet, because that is where politicians are, because that is where journalists are, it gets much, much more attention. The problem also is that that Twitter has a business model that, like YouTube, like Facebook and Instagram, is based on amplifying the content that grabs our attention. And sadly, the stuff that does that best is hate speech disinformation and conspiracy theories. And when you're amplifying that stuff, it does precisely what Sinan just described. And the key thing to understand here is the way that Twitter works is that that harmful speech crowds out everything else. And it does great harm to these communities that Sinan just described. And What's really unbelievable is they've never been able to make much money doing this. And so the big excitement is that maybe Elon Musk is going to make Twitter more successful at what it does. But if it doesn't get rid of algorithmic amplification, if it doesn't actually become a real town square where all voices are treated equally, then I think the whole thing is, is you know, as you say, another step down the road to destroying democracy. So, Sinan, let's talk about how we solve this. There's no, no question about Elon Musk being able to buy Twitter. There's, I mean, he, he, he comes up with the money, he buys it. That's all there is to it. Um, uh, what does success actually look like? If, if Elon Musk were in this conversation, you would probably both agree with him that all four of us would say that free speech is a really important thing that should be protected in this country. Ideas that are not the ones that you agree with should be protected. Uh, what, what is the solution? What does success look like for um, uh, for? for a Twitter that is the town square, the the world's town square? From a democracy perspective and from a business perspective, any successful Twitter has to have content moderation. Yes, the board would have been negligent to not accept this offer because he's essentially offering 44 times EBITDA uh, as a price per share. Uh, That is an offer they can't refuse. In terms of a business strategy, he has leveraged his Tesla stock to buy this company. And Tesla lost 12% last week. That's almost a Netflix uh, in market cap because of what Tesla investors are thinking Twitter is going to do in terms of the business strategy. So what is the business strategy? The deal was announced in the same week that Europe passed the Digital Services Act, which levies hefty fines for platforms that do not moderate content. In other words, if you don't moderate misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech on Twitter, you're going to pay 6% of revenue as a penalty to Europe. And if you don't comply, you're going to be banned from Europe, which means there is no business strategy without content moderation. I think in the end, what he's going to do is he's going to have certain high-profile free speech events, like maybe bringing Donald Trump back to the platform, But you cannot run a profitable Twitter and you cannot have a Twitter that supports democracy without content moderation. It is impossible. So, Roger, how do you square content moderation 
How do you keep it away from censorship? How do, how, do you, how do you walk that line to say, if you really want to hear the ideas of others and you want platforms that, that uh, give equal weight and space to, to uh, ideas that otherwise don't get amplification, how do you do that without becoming a censor? Well, to be clear, Ali, I don't think that content moderation will work here. I don't think it works at the scale of any of these internet platforms. And the reason it doesn't is because the business model essentially rewards exactly the content that you're trying to moderate. And so in that that paradox, it can't be resolved. I think the only way to do it is to force a change to the business model. And our mutual friend, Scott Galloway at NYU, has proposed a subscription business model for uh, for Twitter, because I think that really would solve the problem. I don't think there's any way. I mean, with all due respect to Sunan, I just don't think the technology or the human power to do moderation is going to work at the scale and velocity that these products operate at and that we have to be realistic. The business model is the problem. And if you want to fix this, if you want to save democracy, you have to do something about surveillance capitalism and you have to do something about algorithmic amplification. Listen, we got a minute left, but let me ask you this. Uh, you, you've also suggested two tiers, an unmoderated tier and a and a moderated tier. How would that work? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Twitter tried the subscription model. It didn't work very well. Uh, so that's not something that they haven't tried in the past. The uh, problem is, I agree with Roger, but we do have many instances of advertising-run businesses that are moderated successfully. At the scale of these types of companies, I also agree with Roger that it's at the level of the algorithms where it needs to happen. So dealing with algorithmic amplification in a way that moderates content at scale is possible. Subscription models don't work. If you are able to do some sort of two-tiered system, uh, I think it's going to be extremely difficult. In other words, you might give people choice about whether they want a moderated version or a not moderated version. I don't think that that's feasible in any way because it's all part of the same microphone. It's all part of the same conversation. I think that we have to get a lot more serious about dealing with the transparency of these algorithms and writing them such that they are capable of amplifying content that supports a healthy conversation and moderating content that doesn't do that. And I do think that that's possible. I just don't think there's been any incentive to do it. Yeah, I think you're both right about that. That's a point you both made to me for years. Thanks to both of you. Roger McNamee is the co-founder of Elevation Partners. He's an early Facebook and Google investor. Sinan Aral is a professor at MIT. They're both authors of important books on this topic, which I suggest you read. Before we go, a quick note. I want to let you know you can hear the latest news and updates from all your favorite MSNBC hosts, including me, anytime, anywhere, on any device. All you need is the TuneIn app. Scan the QR code on your screen. Do people do that still? Uh, to start listening right now. That does it for me. Thanks for watching. Uh, you can catch me back here tomorrow morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Velshi. Remember, I've got Margaret Atwood tomorrow. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.